GQ's Mad Influence is brought to you by Moet et Chandon. For every moment worth celebrating, there is Moet et Chandon. Welcome to Mad Influence, a podcast about creative breakthroughs and long artistic careers. I'm your host, Jim Nelson, the editor-in-chief of GQ. On this show, I speak with some of the most acclaimed actors, artists, musicians, and personalities of our time. Influential figures who've managed to forge ambitious and brilliant careers. They've evolved, adapted, and continued to surprise us with their work. My guest today is one of America's great actors, Ethan Hawke. He's been acting since he was just a kid, really. You could tick off any number of roles that represent his singular and pretty amazing career. He played a shy and then not-so-shy student in Dead Poet Society in 1989 when he was just 18. In the 90s, he played a string of memorable characters that defined that decade and the pop culture of that era, including the slacker Troy Dyer opposite Winona Ryder in Reality Bites. In 1995, he teamed up with director Richard Linkletter and the actress Julie Delpy and gave us the first of the Before movies, Before Sunrise, which ultimately became a trilogy. He's continued to work with Linkletter, including the 12 years in the making masterwork, Boyhood. Um, are you all ready? With Hawk, just when you feel like you know the kind of actor he is, he gives another performance, like the one in Training Day in 2001, that completely transforms what you think of him. Along the way, he's been nominated for four Academy Awards for writing and acting. He plays music, writes novels, directs movies. He's a quintuple threat. Just this year alone, he has three movies that are getting much-deserved attention. Preeminent among them is Paul Schrader's First Reformed, in which he gives a deep and moving performance as a priest struggling with his faith in a fucked-up world. He's the lead in the thoroughly charming romantic comedy Juliet Naked, based on the Nick Hornby novel. And he's directed his own film, Blaze, about the country musician Blaze Foley. Ethan Hawke, welcome to Mad Influence. Thanks, man. Great to be here. So I want to talk about, I, we were just talking a second ago about how rare it is for people to have long, creative, productive careers uh, in the arts, in movies, on stage. And so the first thing I want to ask you is, you know, going back to your earliest days, what drew you to this career and whether you imagined or how you imagined what it would be like? Because the thing about child or teen actors, you're, they aren't really in control of their destiny. Mm. And you could argue that no actor is, but a child, teen actors really aren't, right? And they may not even be aware of what they're aspiring to. Mm-hmm. To be famous maybe, to get up dazzle, mm-hmm. to do something with their excess charisma. Mm-hmm. What was it for you? Wow, well, I mean, I find what you're, the whole thesis of this show incredibly interesting, uh, the long arc of creativity, because of course that's what's, that's the goal in so many young people and so many older people advising young people, they just think short term. We're just taught, because we prioritize money at such a high level, it's easy to make decisions on a short-term basis simply by say, well, what will pay me the most? And, right. and, and I'm, I'm reducing it, but it really is true. For example, I vacillated between wanting to be a writer and an actor as a kid, right? That was, I, sometimes I want to be Jack London, sometimes I wanted to be, you know, James Dean, right? Some, right. I just want to be cool. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and my mother gave me this book, Laurence Olivier's book on acting. And it, in it, he talks about playing King Lear. And this is a thing that Denzel Washington speaks very eloquently about this. But the thing that the Brits do, right? Well, if you look at the history of the Academy Awards, it's an American prize, right? That if you added up how many actors uh, have been nominated for that prize and how many of them are British, it's totally out of line. I mean, given the populations, given the fact that it's not even their award, right? Uh, What's that? What do you count that for? What is? It's the long arc of creativity. Hmm. They think that way. They teach that way. They teach their young people um, that they're playing ingenues, and that even though you might, the audiences might be coming to see you because you're cute. Mm-hmm. Right, they, what the real goal is to be Judy Dench. The real goal is to be Vanessa Redgrave. That's you have an end game. You're working towards something beyond what's going to pay off next week. 
you know, and you have respect for your elders. You come and you might be the hottest young actress in London, but you're still only playing the second lead. People are coming to see you, but you're the second lead in Taming of the Shrew. The older actress gets to play Kate, right. you know, and, and, um, and that it, it has a mentor pupil relationship, which actually in a subconscious level gives you respect for the profession. Whereas you take a situation like Winona and I were in in the early 90s, where Winona was in a situation where she was the greatest actress in America. I mean, in 1993 or whatever, she just worked with Scorsese and Daniel Day-Lewis. She'd been nominated for a couple Oscars. Everything she did turned to gold. Uh, she gave Ben Stiller his break. She gave me my break. I mean... Who wanted to get, let Ben Stiller direct a Hollywood movie? Nobody but Winona Ryder. She, she had all the cards. She had. She saw. She believed in Ben. She mm. saw his comedy sketches. He hadn't done. He just he done had the li- show, right? He the, had the Ben Stiller yeah. show, which very One few season. people had seen. Yeah. She thought it was brilliant. She was right. Yeah. And she got him that gig. That's the kind of power she was wielding, and the kind of intelligence that she possesses. Right. Um, she got me that job. Now, the thing that's hard is to be 24, 25 and have that kind of power and not have mentors. And the thing thing for Winona and I is a lot of our mentors, once you're engaged in a commercial environment, people are using you. Mm -hmm. They're playing you. You know, they want you to do their movie. They're not really genuinely interested in your spiritual and creative development. You have to be the person that says, I am not developing. My art is not in sync with where I am as a person and I am in charge of that. No one else is in charge of that. What I was trying to say was Lawrence Olivier's book, he writes beautifully about playing King Lear and that he'd worked his whole life for this moment. And it was really, I was 16, sitting in my attic bedroom in New Jersey with a giant American flag taped to my ceiling and an Elvis Costello poster. And, and I'm reading this. I'm like, you mean this guy? Was, he basically kind of phrases it such that everything was preparation for this. And if you start to look at your whole life as preparation to be your best in your 80s, then minor failures become incredibly interesting, right? Because that's, I, uh, there's a great, I think it was Nolte who said it in some interview I saw. He said that he only learns from the failures. Anytime anything goes right, you just think you're a genius. Right. And, you, you know, I'm brilliant. And um, and you don't learn anything. Every time something goes wrong, you obsess about figuring out why it didn't work. And then you get you get better. So I, I think that, that the first thing that really got me thinking about long-term creativity was... You know, the king himself, Sir Lawrence. Lawrence. I think of you as one of the most recognizable actors, um, and you you had this iconic reputation in the 90s. But, like, you say you weren't commercial, and even when I think about Before Sunrise, I think, well, that has such an influential arc. Well, then you are proving my point. Yeah. See, see, my point is you can reach people without making money your priority. I mean, I am so proud of before the before trilogy, Boyhood, Gattaca, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Um, these are movies that I would happily show to anyone at any moment. And there's a handful of other ones, too. And most of those don't pay mm-hmm. like the way that acting in a zombie picture pays. I was surprised to see that Before Sunrise only made $5 million. That's just incredible to me. What made you... I was curious about see, that. See, isn't that interesting about when you, your show's about time, right? Yeah. Well, it only made that much money, and now I can't go anywhere without people talking. So everybody's seen it. Yeah. I mean, it's. I remember hearing uh, Jeff Tweedy once, you know, saying about he was playing a concert. You know, he's the lead singer Wilco. for Wilco. Yeah. He's playing a concert. He's like, "How do all you people know the words to my songs? Nobody's bought my album." <laughs> <laughs> Predestination is this movie I did, and yeah. people keep coming up to me and, and and telling me they love it. It's the most illegally downloaded movie of its year, you know, which yeah. I, I guess I'm kind of proud of. But is that the one role? What's the one role that people come at you with the most? Is it Troy or or what? 
it changes with the demographic. I mean, you know, there's a certain person that gets misty-eyed thinking about boyhood. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. a parent or they're exactly Eller Coltrane's age, you know, mm-hmm. the late, you know, mm-hmm. one, one, or, one or the other. Um, there's a certain person that had the Reality Bites poster on their wall in college, right? Mm-hmm. There's a certain person that has the Criterion Collection of before trilogy. There's a huge group of... The great thing about Training Day is it crosses... I mean, you know, the guys who are riding on the back of a garbage truck yelling at me, where's the money, Jake? You got the money, you know? <laughs> and like my lawyer, they love that. Both right. love that movie, do yeah. you, you know? I mean, that one, like, the, that's the kind of thing I love most about that movie. Jake, I need the money. Give me the money, Jake. Give me the money, please, Jake. Give me that money! It's not going to happen. What are you, you going to jack me now? You going to take my own money from me, huh? I told you, that's my evidence. You want to go to jail, you want to go home. There's certain horror fanatics that go bonanzas for uh, Sinister. Yeah. And a long time ago, I used to say this to Linklater when we were becoming friends, that I had this goal about my obituary. You know, I wanted my obituary to say he had one good movie in every genre. <laughs> and that was in that. That's a pretty great uh, uh, obituary objective. Yeah. <laughs> was, That's, um, well, I, I want to get back to that, that idea of knowing or having that self-awareness to be able to chart your own path. Uh, there's a key moment after Reality Bites. I think it's 94. Richard Linklater has said that you were being offered every role in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And he said, mm-hmm. and then for some reason, he chose Before Sunrise. Why? Rick Rick loves to say that he single-handedly diminished my star power more than anybody else. <laughs> uh, I chose before sunrise. I'll tell you this. I have a daughter who's 20 who's going into acting right now, and she's really... Is she re- on Stranger Things? Yeah, she's yeah. on Stranger Things, Maya Hawk. And she uh, you know, is going through that thing as a young person having to figure out what to work on you know she's like do I do this job my agents hate this job but I kind of like it are they right and what do how do I listen and it's very actually really difficult and nobody can teach you what you want to do with your life and how you want to spend the days of your life and before sunrise was a very strange script most of the people in my life advised me not to do that movie. Really? I mean, in fact, I cannot think of a person that advised me to do the movie. Um, very smart people. The yeah, Even if you think about the pitch, it's like we're going to go to one town with two people in the, sh- in the shot throughout the entire movie, and they're going to talk about existentialism. <laughs> they just didn't... They were like, what? <laughs> it sounds like, you know... And and here's the thing about, about what we're talking about. At that exact moment in time... Mm-hmm. Days of Confused had just bombed at the box office. God, I love that movie. Well, who doesn't? It's one of the great yeah. films. Of them. And, but so all the agents and mentors and people I had in my life said, look, you know, yeah, Slacker was good, but Days was a bomb. I was like, did you see it? And they're like, no. I'm like, it's brilliant. And like, yeah. well, it's, it didn't work. He's not a Hollywood filmmaker. He's a little indie guy. He had his chance. It's over. I'm like, I don't think so. You know, I just, I, I just don't think so. You could see that? You knew that? I sat and I, when I watch, when Days of Confused end, right, I'm watching that. I saw an advanced screening of it because I was, I was doing a play with one of the kids who was in the cast. Mm-hmm. Anthony Rapp was in the cast and Steve Zahn was to my left. Yeah. And we snuck a 12 pack into a screening room. I remember because the, they kept rolling down the aisle, you know, you know how that <laughs> happens. And we're watching this movie and it ends with some kids in the back of a GTO on the way to buy Aerosmith tickets. Yeah. And I was like, this is Chekhov. That, that's the ending of a Chekhov play. That's, I mean, I was like, who is this guy? Who just made a movie that's not about anything except what it's like to live life and made it so funny and so enjoyable? I was like, I want to work with that guy. You know, and so then everybody. It's so kept, funny for you to say to say that because I saw that movie and I said that's my teenage existence right there in a nutshell. You saw Chekhov. Yeah, yeah. I, is, is it just because you knew that it was did it have a timeless quality to it? Or? Yeah, it had a. T- it, you remember there's a moment in that movie where he just stops the movie for I don't know three minutes and he follows the little league teams going good game, good game, good game, yeah. good game, good game, good game. I'd done that my whole. Whole, chi- whole childhood, that good game moment yeah. where a bunch of guys line up and totally insincerely tell each other the good game to yeah. like 
practice good sportsmanship, but they don't. They, it's just totally habitual. And there was something about it, just witnessing that moment on film, that I thought was profound. And I don't, I don't know why I thought it was Chekhov exactly, except for that. And I, and so when people kept telling me not to do the movie, I really, it swam against everything in my body, and I'm really happy that I did it. Obviously, because it turned out. You should. I should also know, and I have to. I, Rick hates it that I say this, but it, it, it's true. In the original draft of the script, the way Jesse talks Celine into getting off the train mm-hmm. is by telling her in a four-page monologue about how good John Huston's The Dead is. Okay, <laughs> and, and and I can see him, Rick. This is not how you talk a girl into getting off the train. I, <laughs> I don't know a woman in the history of the world that cares about your theories about John Huston meets James Joyce. Okay, I don't know anyone. You say, you're wrong. You're wrong. And um, and Julie said, not a French woman. And, uh, and, so, and and so she had your back there. She had my back. And. So the script was very difficult to read. And yeah. so, but I had, I smelled in Rick uh, a friend and I smelled somebody who was a serious artist and that smell is worth chasing. There's, there's an incredible, incredible moment in that movie I wanted to ask you about because the interpersonal relationship between you two basically not just drives the movie, is the movie. And there has to be, I know that you rehearse the hell out of it, Mm -hmm. but there are so many periods when you are in real time, say there's a scene where you're playing pinball machine. Yeah, right. And you, and you, and you (laughs) flirt and you look, no matter how many times you've rehearsed that, you can't control the game, can't control the ball. And you guys, that scene is just unbelievably fluid. I know. And and, thank you for noticing. It's one of the, it's those little moments in acting that are so blessed and most directors wouldn't do that to have the yeah. confidence in their actors we rehearsed we rehearsed and then he puts up two cameras and we have to play a game of pinball so he's got cuts but there's still the same take you know he changes the angle of what your focus is but it lets us because you could no take with the ball do the same thing right. right so you had to and and it's isn't it one single shot at least for, it's, for a it's, while oh for five minutes at yeah, a time it's yeah it's incredible but, then, but even it's still one ball the whole yeah. i mean we're i mean yeah. we're all playing i mean one game of pinball yeah and uh and Rick was so disappointed in me. Man, come on. Where's your pinball game? I was like, my performance <laughs> you, was good. Your huh? pinball game was not great in, that, no, he's, in the I, final I, version. I, I said, because I'm usually Julie's a much better, better pinball player than that. And um, But it's very difficult to both remember your lines, yeah. seduce a woman, and play a great game of pinball. So how about you? What? Are you with anyone? Um... It's funny how we managed to avoid this subject for so long, isn't it? Yeah, but now you have to tell me. Well, I kind of see love as this uh, escape for two people who don't know how to be alone, you know? The point is that Rick cares. Like, see, Rick cares about that. And here it is 20 years later, and you care about it. (laughs) You noticed. And people, people notice. And they might not notice right away, but they do notice if you're doing something special. That's why I was curious if you had rehearsed did you do you know you're walking through the streets of vienna did you literally you know just do those same walks each day did you do it on a set did you do it in a park how did you rehearse that it's a little bit like the whole energy around a link letter movie is a lot like what i read about playing jazz meaning it's extremely rehearsed and incredibly free yeah we could be walking anywhere. We would walk through any alley in Vienna and he would have somebody guiding him so he could walk backwards, right? And he would just watch us walk and he would go, eh, that line's bad, isn't it? Let's cut that line. Um, and then we would spend all day, Saturday and Sunday doing this and he would go, and then one time somebody would walk by and I would make a joke and he'd go, hey, that's funny. That was funny. Let's put that in the script. Uh, if you like that movie, there's this amazing moment, I, I think, that is pure link letter, which is we run into two guys on a bridge who are going to do a play. Yeah. Bring to me the horns of Wilmington's cow, right? Which was a real play that was happening in Vienna when we wanted to do it. And those were the, and we wanted to see that show. But Rick said, wouldn't it be great if you do a setup in a movie where you meet some people who say, come to see this play, and everybody in the audience knows you're going to come see the play? And we don't. 
It's the anti checkoff because that gun never goes the off. The gun never goes <laughs> off, and that was. And we were talking about that. Like, let's. We have. We would build in the script conversations that get dropped. You know, before yeah. sunset has a great moment where I say, um, "Everybody believes in you know." some kind of God. And she goes, no, I don't. I'm an atheist. I was like, okay, well, you don't believe in any kind of magic. And she said, mm, not really. I said, well, you believe in horoscopes. And she goes, yes, of course. <laughs> right. And then we both laugh and change the subject. You never find out where, where was Jesse going with this yeah, whole yeah. thing. And I loved it because it's a really fun construction because you get to screw. We're a whole generation that's grown up watching movies and we we watch the architecture of scripts and it's so repetitive and it's so redundant, redundant and it's so fun to be on set with a person who's not trying to make money. Because Rick is trying to communicate. He's talking to you. Yes, of course we all want to make money. Of course I want a, you know, I want to buy my son a kick-ass Gretsch electric guitar. Yes, I'd want to pay my doctor's bills. Yes, I want to take care of my mother. Yes, I want to support uh, whatever charities are interesting to me. I've, I mean, we all long for power and money. I get it. I'm not pretending I don't, yeah. right? But I'm saying if you don't make that number one, if you don't give the reins of the horse, you know, the rein, you don't put the reins in those hands. You know, they can be part of your decision making, but they don't have the whole thing. Then you get to do, hey, wouldn't it be weird if let's make a movie that doesn't make any sense at all? And maybe like minded people will think that's funny. There were periods in your career where you did start to get restless with whether it was making money or 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 your uh, your reputation or whatever. And I know I I know that in before you did Training Day, you were frustrated with your career, right? Mm-hmm. What was that about? I've been frustrated with my career at a lot of different moments. You know, I mean, and and by that I mean badly frustrated. Mm. Uh, once reality bites happens, I was this. Gen X guy. Yeah. Well, there's an there's an inherent problem or intrinsic problem with that label, which is when you want to be in um, Saving Private Ryan, you can't get an audition because they don't want the Gen X guy in the World War II movie, mm. right? So you and I started seeing how walls were coming up, mm. and decisions I'd made, successes I had, were turning into formaldehyde. Like the, the formaldehyde is rising up around my ankles and coming up around my knees because I can't get an audition for this brilliant movie. I mean, here's the funny thing is I kept hearing from my actor friends they were doing scenes from A Midnight Clear for the auditions for Saving Private Ryan, right? Because they Damn. didn't want to give the script out. Yeah. And my friends are going, yeah, Spielberg really loves Midnight Clear. I'm like, why can't I get an audition? You know, well, no, don't want you. We know who you are. You knew the Spielberg didn't want you. Yeah, and he was right not to want me. You know, it... it, it Meaning, he didn't want the Gen X guy yeah. in the World War II, and that makes sense. But I, I use it as example to say, basically, for a couple years, you know, three, four, five years after Reality Bites, you're washed up. You're passe. You're the guy from yesterday's flavor of the month, mm-hmm. you know, and you have to fight your way out of that box, you know. And so, Training Day, getting the role in Training Day. Uh, helped but I will say that I was getting out of that box anyway uh, and I, I say that not to pat myself on the back but to say that I think I got that part because I was ready and th- that's my voice talking to young actors saying you don't have to wait for somebody to get give you a part to be ready I had made some breakthroughs in my work with Linklater we did a movie called Tape yeah. and I did a movie uh, called Hamlet um, I was doing I did my own weird I did a movie for $100,000 I directed called Chelsea Walls I was working my ass off I couldn't get a job but I, I did have some celebrity and I used it to make all these weird indie movies that really elevated my work and Denzel noticed you know okay yeah I want him because I wasn't waiting around for people to give me permission to do the kind of work that I wanted to do. Yeah, you said that you realized that you, that was the first role where you felt truly confident. In tape? No, no, in, 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 in training day. Where yeah. you, said, you said that you, it takes a while to earn that confidence. And it's funny that, because when I look back on some of your early work, I think, where did you get that confidence? It's almost, it's almost cockiness. 
mm-hmm. in the early days. I remember thinking with Reality Bites, it's like, wow, that guy's kind of cocky. <laughs> yeah, and people get really confused about whether or not, I mean, audiences can't quite grapple whether I'm an asshole or Troy's an asshole. Is he actually good enough to be playing an asshole? Or right. is that kid just an asshole? <laughs> right. You know, and um, and audiences project too. They they projected. I mean, it, the strange thing about the success of that movie was that it made me famous and it made everyone in the country think I was an asshole. <laughs> you know, so it was like the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. You right. know, I was like, I was thinking also about the many roles you've played, and there's this, there's a couple of interesting through lines through it. One of the, I think you may be the actor who is filmed. Most often, reading a book in the history of cinema, <laughs> <laughs> there must be a contract. I think so There's too. a writer in your contract. I so often, where somebody like casts me as a writer again, writer and snow. Somehow, <laughs> yeah. they always want to put me in one of those two things. And it's and it's funny. Uh, so I'm going to ask you what because you're obviously a book lover because you've also written novels. What are the three most influential books on you? Mm. Well, I always like to tease Richard Linkletter that I say. Um, Charles Bukowski, John Cassavetes, Richard Linkletter, and Jack Kerouac are the four artists responsible for inspiring the most bad art in the history of the world. (laughs) Because you read a Charles Bukowski book of poetry and you think, I can write poetry. Yeah. Just get drunk. Just get drunk, man. Wake up in the morning, you know. Uh, Take a leak. Write a poem about it. Or Kerouac, you know, I'll write about my friends. Yeah, my friends are great too, man. Take a bus ride. My friends are cool. I love the way my buddy lights a cigarette. You know, and you think that is on the road. Um, You know, with Rick, it's like Rick's made a movie about the night he graduated high school, the night he fell in love. You know, growing up, easy peasy. You know, we all relate to it, but it's it's hard to do. The books that change my life, um, it changes when I think about it. Um, The most recent one. There's a kind of catcher in the rye for 40-year-olds that if you haven't read, is, is called Stoner by John Williams. Oh, I love that book. That book I love is that just book. like, it yeah. is, it's a, for some reason, that was the most recent book that was uh, an uppercut to the jaw. Um, the other most recent one is James McBride's uh, Good Lord Bird. Oh, yeah. It, it, it really puts its finger on the national wound with love and silliness and wit and it's like a mark twain book Um, that that voice is very funny so it's a twain it's twain-esque guy whatever you call it it's just so irreverent and to be talking about such a serious subject matter as john brown and do it so irreverently um i remember go tell it on the mountain james baldwin was like somebody cracked my head open um of human bondage somerset mom really affected my life that's the one with the character who is a libertine in... in uh, no, that's Razor's Edge. Razor's, that's Razor's well, that's Edge. the other Razor's great Edge one. Is that's my favorite. Yeah. yeah. Mom, for a while, yeah. he, you know, He's Moon a and Sixpence. Character. I love his quote. Also, you know, also kind of like lived a double life, too. Totally. Like gay. He, yeah, yeah, totally in hiding, but he was incredibly popular. He has my, one of my favorite quotes where they asked him about, you know, you've been so successful. How do you rate yourself? And, you know, how do you rate your own work? He said... I'm in the front row of the second tier. (laughs) (laughs) The front row of the second tier. Yeah. That's a fantastic place to be. It is, it is. Hey, I want to take a quick break here just to thank our sponsor. It's totally fitting that since this podcast is about creative breakthroughs and singular moments, moments that are worth remembering, that Mad Influence is brought to you by Moet de Chandon. They obviously know a thing or two about appreciating life's important events and moments. So as we sort of examine what goes into pretty unforgettable creative careers, we are grateful for the support of Moet de Chandon and for their encouragement to celebrate the moments that matter most. So I want to also bring up uh, this next movie, this uh, movie that's out now, um, First Reformed, that I just think your performance in it is in fucking incredible. And um, I listened to this interview with uh, Schrader and you, Fresh Air, and Schrader, I know he's, you know, he's, he's a guy that did Taxi Driver. He's this legend. And I'm just curious, he said he only gave you kind of one directorial note, which is to, to rein in in your energies and direct it inward. And that's what the performance is. But I read the script and it's just, you know, it's it's got this torment to it. And there's angst, there's, there's, there's languor, there's longing, there's all, so many things in it. And I'm just wondering, you also said that there's a scream 
at the heart of the movie. What is that scream, and how did you and Paul Schrader contain it? Well, it happens very rarely in an actor's life, if you're lucky, you get a script like that. Like, it came up, and I printed it out. You know, he emailed it to me, and I was about four pages into it, and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, what is this? You know, this is a serious movie. Everybody's, you know, I keep repeating myself, but everybody's selling something. You feel them trying to sell something. And you start Paul's script and you're like, oh, he has something to say. What's going on here? It's immediately laced with secrets. He says, it starts and he says, I'm going to keep this journal for one year and then I'll tear it up. I've decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. Yeah. tells you why why something's bothering this guy what's going to happen at the end of the year right you know like there was a sense of explore of self-exploration that you do see in literature that you don't see in movies that i was excited to play i did feel in reading it I, it was the exact same voice as the voice that wrote taxi driver you know mm-hmm. i'd seen there was a yeah. Restoration print of text. I'd seen it three, four years ago, and it was just as mind-blowing as it was the first time I, I saw it. And it's a little bit like, um, do you remember, it's kind of long gone now, but do you remember there was a long period where Terrence Malick didn't make a movie? Yeah, he, of course. He, you know, he'd done Days of Heaven, Badlands. 15-some years. Yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden, Thin Red Line came yeah. out, and it was the exact same filmmaker. Yeah, that's right. It was, you were like, oh, it's like he didn't, it's not like 15 years went by and he was like a different guy. It's yeah. 15 years went by and it's the same filmmaker. I felt like Taxi Driver to this movie, that's the same author. That's right. So that was very exciting. So I'm reading, and here it is. But he's older. This voice is wiser. It's more mature. He's talking about what he really knows about, which is faith and fear of death. And why are we born? What are we doing here? What I mean, he's asking all the big questions. And he's pissed off. Yes, the, there's a rage. There's like, a rage. Like there is in Taxi Driver. Like yeah, Travis it's the same. It's like yeah. I felt like this same lion that was a young lion in taxi driver is still roaming the jungle you know and it's like i read the script and it was like this lion was roaring and and i had to play it i knew it wasn't going to be fun you know paul's not you know a blast you know? Yeah. I, mean, I mean he doesn't say good morning he doesn't say goodbye he, yeah you know i mean yeah he's not into niceties i mean literally he'd direct me and and at first it was very difficult you know he, he would say i we do a couple takes he go is that the best you can do <laughs> right and I'd, uh, at first I was like uh, no I'll, I'll do it again and then finally that's the best you can do and I realized yeah yeah buddy that's the best I can do Damn. and he's like alright good moving on <laughs> and uh, what a note what a director's note well it makes I mean it's a it's a challenge yeah it's a challenge every day and you've had some tough notes You, I, I heard that Gary Sinise once said to you, you're the weakest link. Said it to the entire cast. <laughs> How do you well, get past that? Well, you also have to, that needs a preface, which is that you have to put yourself, that was the most exciting moment in my career up to that date. I, I had really? fallen in love with the theater and acting through Sam Shepard, through Steppenwolf. I saw Gary Sinise and John Malkovich do True West. Yeah. Right. Steppenwolf, it, right? It blew me away. There I was, a 20th anniversary production of Steppenwolf. They asked me to be in a Sam Shepard play. Shepard is there. Damn. I'm in I'm in the basement of Steppenwolf. I mean, I may as well be, you know, I may as well be playing, you know, with the clash. I mean, it was like what I wanted to do with my life. And obviously Gary thought I was a little cocksure or something. And, and he said to the whole group, he said, okay, we all know the expression, team is only as strong as the weakest link. Yeah, I believe in that. Ethan, that's you. In case you're unclear, that's God you. Damn. So uh, I need you to dig a little deeper. I need you to get a little more real. Uh, I don't, you know, and he just, he Did went Did you feel like me. two inches tall? What'd you do? When I was alone, I cried. Yeah. I mean, Fuck, you know, I, I put my fist through a wall. I yeah. thought he was an asshole. I, um, and my performance got better. You know, I was with some card-carrying great people. And um, I, don't, I don't think I was the weakest link. I mean, I don't think, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, he was fucking with your head, right? I think he was punishing me. Yeah. But I'll tell you this. I don't, to this day, 
I do not, if I have a monologue, yeah. I think about Gary Sinise. Really? Yeah, because he used to say what he asked. I mean, he's a world-class, there's a reason why Steppenwolf changed the world. I mean, Laurie Metcalf, Laurie Metcalf. Jeff Perry, um, Malkovich, John Mahoney, all the, you know, th- this is a theater company that is one of the only acting movements in this country. And it's in, and Gary would say to me, I had this monologue at the end of the play and, uh, Gary, we would give notes after the thing and you go, do you notice what happened in the middle of the monologue? I'm like, no, man. He goes, a couple people coughed. I'm like, yeah. He goes, you know why they coughed? Cause you're boring. Said so you think that you think you think they'd cough if Brando was doing that speech? I bet not. I bet they I bet they couldn't get their breath, right? I'm just saying that all, do you have their fucking attention or don't you? Jesus. Right? And 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 he goes, and you know how you get their attention? Stop acting. Right? You think they you think they cough when Ted Ted Levine is brilliant, he was playing Tilden and, and he said Funny they don't cough when Tilton's talking. God. You ever notice that? You know, I mean, he was brutal. The school of brutalism. Oh yeah. Well, he's you know, and and I'd be like, okay, and and he would stop. He'd go, you know, I'd say one sentence, and he go, oh, why'd you say that? Uh, I don't. I don't want you to answer. I want you to know. You know, and I'm like okay, and then I get to the next. Oh, 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 is that the same reason? It's the same reason you said that. That you said that. Well, no, I don't want an answer. I want you to know. You know I know that you don't know. Damn. You know? And so I'd sit there, and it's a whole monologue about seeing your past and seeing your family heritage and, and, and hating yourself and loving your heritage and knowing you can't escape mm. it and knowing that it's killing you and knowing that it's what gave you life. And, you know, it's everything Shepard was writing about. And it had to be good. And his point, really, what I took away from it when I left the production is that you can always be better. Yeah. And that there's something that happens to young people sometimes. With, Aren't I good? Wasn't that cute? Wasn't that, didn't I? I had a good moment there. Why, why couldn't you have a better moment? And I always, whenever I have a long speech, you know, when I'm doing uh, Schrader's movie, you know, I have a kind of audience in my brain. This isn't conscious, but I have an audience that I'm performing for. And Linkletter's there. My wife is there. Jack O'Brien, great theater director, is there. Linkletter's there. Antoine Fuqua's there. You know, people who have helped me, people who, you know, people whose minds I admire. Sam Shepard. Uh, Sam Shepard, he's there. Tom Stoppard yeah. is there. You know, I mean, like, <laughs> Tom has this great thing. I love it, you know, about the level of excellence. Gary aspires for an extremely high level of excellence. Tom Stoppard, I remember, came up to me after a preview of one of his plays, and, and he said... Act one, scene two, end of scene, your line is, well, that won't do, or is it, well, comma, that won't do? And I said, uh, I don't know. Let me go look. Let me go consult the text. And he goes, I go look, and I said, oh, it's, well, comma, that won't do. And he goes, yes, I know. You know? And, 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 uh, That's and, priceless. That is and, pri- and, and here's the funny thing, right? The next night I go, well, that won't do. Huge laugh. Damn. And I'm like, somehow he understands the yeah. architecture of... On a molecular of, level. On the, s- of the music he yeah. has written. Yes. Y- y- you know? And it's a level of excellence. I mean, you know, Rick, when you talked about how we rehearse those scenes and Before Sunrise and stuff, um, he would say, you keep doing that funny, like, stutter thing on that line. Yeah. Yeah, don't do that. It, 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 it's so good when you do it on, on the fourth line. And if you do it on the first and the fourth, it's kind of boring. And I, you know, it's eleven minute take. I can't cut it out, so just don't do it, huh? You know. And 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 I just on a molecular level, yeah. people are understanding what they're what they're trying to make. I'm I'm curious with Schrader in particular, but thinking about how you've worked with incredible actors, De Niro, uh, Denzel, and incredible director Cindy Lumet, do you ever get intimidated on set at this point in your career? Uh, definitely. You know, the first time you do a rehearsal of Macbeth, you are a moron if you're not intimidated. I mean, it's a giant mountain to climb. And as an American artist, you know, I'm not trained. I, 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 I can't begin 
to jump in. You know, I can dive in and I can bring, I had some ideas about what I wanted to deliver. I had this amazing coach and she's British and she's coached Ian McKellen and she coached Judy Dench. She coached Denzel, Liz Smith. She taught at Juilliard and she was my teacher on, on Macbeth. And I, I came in and I said, oh, geez, I went down the rabbit hole last night. I'm on YouTube and I'm watching Ian McKellen. I'm watching Sean Connery and I'm watching Mark Rylance and I'm watching all these guys do Macbeth. And I'm like, and I said, you know, I got to tell you, I can't do that. She's like, no, you can't. But you can do something they can't. And that's the key. She said, there are a bunch of English ham bones Right? And what if we tried to do what you do well? That's what we're going to do. We're going to do this your way and we're going to discover your way. And it's a great, great, and she, was, she had just seen Before Midnight. And she said to me, she said, okay, you can't fake 25 years at the RSC. Can't be done. Right. You can't fake that much experience. Those guys, they have something, you know. But she said, you know, there's a scene in Before Midnight where you're talking to your wife and it's so real and there are four or five different emotional currents flowing through in against each other. So what if when you talk to the audience, if it were done, when tis done, twere well it were done quickly. What if that was real? She said, Ian McKellen doesn't do it real. Why don't you try? Let's, let's, let's try to make it real. What if you're thinking about killing somebody? You. Not some fictitious dude who lived a million years ago. What if, what if you knew if you killed somebody, your wife would have everything she wanted and your kids would all be happy and you would have four Oscars on your shelf and everyone would love you if all you had to do was kill one really old man, <laughs> right? And no one will know but you and your wife. That's a great lesson. You know, in, in, in it is lies a secret. So you win or lose, you win and lose on who you are. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? That's that's the thing. And, and so should I not do Shakespeare because I didn't do 25 years at RSC? Fuck no. Fuck you. I want to do it too. It's beautiful. And meaning I was intimidated. I mean, to answer your yeah, question. Yeah. Um, when Paul, <laughs> there's a moment in the movie. Uh, well, there's many moments. Paul's very intimidating, dude. I would he imagine. has a very high. Um, well, also just just on a simple level, playing a priest didn't intimidate you. I love religion, truthfully. Yeah, I. I, uh, I know you did missionary work when you were. I did missionary work when I was a kid, and you know when I get lost in my life, you know I've always there's a Abbey of Gethsemane where Thomas Merton yeah. lived, you know, and I've I've always gone there for these silent retreats in my life, and I I've met a lot of spiritual people in my life that really moved me. I mean, you know, the, the news is full of hypocrisy about religion. And, uh, if you say that you're Christian then immediately people think they know actually everything about the way your brain works and they don't allow for the nuance of what a life of faith might mean. And I've been really moved by a lot of these men and women that I've met in my life. And I was really excited to play a spiritual person, a person who dedicated their life to the spiritual life and not make fun of them or not have them be evil or not have them be, have a dark, malevolent secret. His secret is how much pain he's in, you know? And his crisis of faith, too. And his crisis of faith, you know? His secret is that he lost his son. Yeah. And he feels some responsibility. And And some responsibility. And then guess what happened? He tried to help another young man. Yeah. And it happened again. Yeah. I mean, this is a man who's in immense pain. In a world where we have no religious leadership, where the leadership is failing, and, and if we, we don't have political leadership. The heavens declare the glory of God. God is present everywhere in every plant, every river, every tiny insect. The whole world is a manifestation of his holy presence. I think this is an issue where, where the church can lead, but, but they say nothing. That's the scream you were asking about. Yeah. You, you know, that's the scream. And, you know, I, I just meditated on that scream. And, and in a way, you know, the end of the movie, I just shoved my cloth down my own throat. You know, there's a scene where I just, it's just, I, it can't handle it, you know? I imagine that there was an element of the discipline and rigor of an almost monastic life that appealed to you as a student of acting. I think that people who have a long career 
you find a way to integrate your own development with your development as an artist and that you don't need any success or failure to do that. You, you know, that it, it should live out, outside of that. If my work as an actor causes me to fail as a man, then that's something's broken in that wheel. And I do think a lot of artists, you know, I made this movie about Blaze Foley. Yeah, I wanted you know, to ask you about I've, that. You know, a lot of artists can't integrate that. You know, I made this documentary, Seymour Bernstein, he talks about this, that sometimes like a guy like Glenn Gould, Brando, Jackson Pollock, Picasso, they experience such grace in their work that the ordinary life, the scratchy, bullshit, annoying, gotta be there at 3.30, not 3.35, where, oh, I forgot my driver's license, I can't get in, they won't give me my car, uh, just the regularness of life, right? feels so horrible because there's this place they've created that has grace. I, I keep thinking about the whole arc of your career and some of those high points are also romantic comedies and romances there's uh, as, as often as you are reading a book in a movie you're also kissing someone <laughs> there's, there, so many of your movies end in a climactic kiss and I'm curious about how you navigate being uh, moving between these different modalities and specifically I saw recently this uh, classic Dick Cavett interview in which Betty Davis uh, talks about kissing on, in the movies and she's just like Oh, Dick, it's dreadful. And how just, you know, how, how incredibly awkward it is as an experience. Um, so, you, you know, as one of the great romantic actors of our time, you have to tell us, what, what, was, what did you learn from that? Did you ever, how do, how do you fake that kind of stuff? It's very strange. One of the things that I, I say on set sometimes is that if you're doing a fight scene, they don't say, okay, uh, I did a movie with Mark Ruffalo, right? And they don't say, okay, so... Uh, Ethan and Mark are just going to go fight. You go punch him in the mouth and, you know, see right. what happens, right? But, but kissing or love scenes and stuff, they often just say, like, go kiss. <laughs> Do you know? Because it makes... <laughs> so we're all so hung up on sexuality, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And you have to be kind of a mathematician about it. Yeah. And you have to be a scientist about it, about what is romantic love and what is intimacy. And you have to use your own life. And it's very confusing. And it's, there's a reason I read an interview with Dustin Hoffman. At one point he said he just stopped doing anything that involved kissing because it, it, it takes your emotional life down a, a terrain. I Because uh, there's also, it, it's interesting, the new movie, Juliet Naked. Oh my God. It, it's, such a, it's such a charming movie. I don't know how many, I mean, Nick Hormie must have the, the highest proportion of just thoroughly charming movies because uh, they're well, all really, really good. He's such a good writer. Yeah. I mean, he really is. But what's interesting about that movie is it's kind of a romantic comedy, but it feels, all the, you, and you're playing kind of like, um, I, there's a little bit of the dude from the Big Lebowski. There's a little bit, there's a <laughs> yeah, little bit is, of, yeah. There is. And there's a little bit of Troy if he was a little older. Definitely. I always, I always uh, called it Troy looks at 50. Okay. You know? and, yeah. and there's that, but there's also this kind of like, I mean, you're playing with things that could be really close to stereotype, but it's, uh, it's a romance, but the characters really feel three-dimensional. Um, well, you know, that's the answer to your kissing question. The truth is, it's gratuitous and dumb and banal kissing. And I mean, it's very hard to get romantic love on screen. It's yeah. very hard. It's, it's not very hard to do pornography. It's very, and it's not very hard to do something antiseptic, but to get eroticism and love on film, because it's a big, wonderful part of our lives, but it's very hard. And the way it works is when the whole structure of the piece is behind you. That's actually, if you're relying on the way she takes her top off to be erotic, it's not, you have to love the person. You know, if you're in love with the woman, it doesn't matter what, how she takes her top off, it's amazing. Do you, you know, and that's when the movie's behind you. Like, here's, for example, one of the great cinema kisses of, that I've been a part of didn't happen. It's the end of Before Sunset. 
the whole movie. Oh, I got to get the plane. I know. Well, I'll just, uh, well, let me walk you to the car. Okay, hey, I'll ride you in the car. Actually, I'll bring you home. Actually, let me walk you to the door. Actually, I'll just, can I just see your apartment real quick? And you're just waiting for them to kiss. And finally she says, you know, you're going to miss that plane. And I say, I know. And you know, the next four seconds is some major making out. But the movie cuts the black before that happens. In a way, no kiss would be good enough. You, you know, seeing it, it's Jesse and Celine's I love kiss. that part about that movie. I just love the way it ends and you just you just left hanging. It's a master of like keeping you hanging. It, it, but there's also, there's the way that Paul Schrader does it, which is to turn oh, it into yeah, something right. celestial. It's, yeah. I just was, and I, so I was not right. prepared for that moment. And yet I, it's the thing that just keeps... Uh, in terms of like cinematography and just weird places that Paul Schrader has taken you, that's a that's a wild place. The end of that movie is, you know, Zen Cohn. I mean, it's it's an incredible work. I remember when he first we first talked about it. I was like, okay, let me say that I love this, and now tell me what's happening because I have no idea what's happening. Like, I, uh, and and I have no idea what I'm playing. And and he said. A good movie starts when you walk out of the movie theater. We're asking a question. You know. And that's true because that movie has just lived in my brain. And it does. It lives months. in your brain. It's hope and despair at the same time. It's every arrival has a departure. Every departure has an arrival. It's all the same. And it's so mysterious and unknowable. And to give it an answer is to reduce the mystery of what we're doing here. Ethan Hawke, thank you very much for being our guest on Mad Influence. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Mad Influence. We'll be airing new episodes every two weeks. Thanks to my guest, Ethan Hawke. Uh, If you haven't seen his performance this year, especially in First Reform, go out and watch it. Seek it out. It's great. And hey, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and even rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Thanks. Thanks.